Years ago, in our old location, we had a fellow walk into Calvary Chapel one Sunday morning. He took a seat on the back row. All was fine until I began to wrap up the Bible study that morning. And that's when this fellow rose to his feet and asked me if he could say a word to the congregation. Well, I had a suspicion. And since part of my job is to protect God's people, I insisted on reviewing his comments before he spoke them. Well, the man was obviously unhappy that I hadn't just given him the floor. Well, when I asked him what he wanted to communicate, he grunted and he pointed to his Bible. I said, well, I like the Bible too, but what in the Bible is it that you want to read? He turned to Zechariah chapter 14 and he pointed to the page. Again, I told him, I said, okay, I like the book of Zechariah, but show me the exact passage that you think is for us this morning. Well, finally, he pointed to chapter 14, verse 12. It's a judgment on God's enemies. It reads, This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. I can only imagine the grisly application he had Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain that morning. I explained to the man that the passage that he had read was addressed to the enemies of God, not the family of God. And I wasn't about to let him or anyone else for that matter hijack this pulpit and lay some kind of guilt trip on folks that Jesus died to forgive and wants to encourage. Then I told him if he had any guts, he'd take his message to the streets and share it with those who didn't know Jesus. Of course, the fellow bristled up. His final words before he stomped out of the sanctuary that morning is he accused yours truly of quenching the Holy Spirit. As I mulled over his indictment, I heard the Lord speak to me, Sandy, you were quenching a spirit, but it sure wasn't the Holy Spirit. No pastor should be guilty of quenching or hindering the Holy Spirit But there are some spirits that need to be quenched. Jude would tell us that a big part of being a pastor is quenching the spirits that need to be quenched. A pastor is like a forest ranger. He teaches people to build campfires as he helps people put out wildfires. Realize the term pastor means shepherd. And a shepherd's job is twofold. He feeds the flock. He sees to it that the sheep eat well, but he also protects the flock, and he makes sure that the sheep aren't eaten. If all a pastor does is feed and feed and feed the sheep and never warns them of the wolves and the predators that threaten, he's only fattening them up for the slaughter. A pastor needs to both feed and warn. And this is what Pastor Jude does in his short letter. Verse 1, he introduces himself. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Two men named Jude play prominent roles in the Gospels. The Jude who was one of the original apostles and Jude, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. Jesus' sibling Jude is probably the author here. Recall in John chapter 7 verse 5, prior to Jesus' resurrection, Even his brothers and sisters didn't believe in his deity. 
Jesus said to his home, own hometown of Nazareth, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Familiarity often breeds contempt, as it did in Jesus' own family. But when they saw their brother conquer death, all their doubts were dispelled. The evidence now added up. They could connect the dots. Jesus was who he said he was, not only their brother, but God's son. We learn in Acts 15 that another of Jesus' brothers, James, had a leadership role in the Jerusalem church. Here, Jude identifies himself by his relationship to James. You know, it's interesting that if Jude had been a name dropper, I'm sure he would have introduced himself, the brother of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord of all. Instead, he says, brother of James, bondservant of Jesus. It shows his humility. Jude was a bondservant, literally a love slave of Jesus. And remember, a bondservant was a special category of slave. For after being freed, he continued to serve, no longer out of obligation, but now out of love. You know, we too are bound to Jesus. As Lord, He holds claim to heaven and earth. As our Master, He demands our total allegiance. We too are His slaves. But once you know His grace, desire replaces duty. We serve the Lord not because we have to, but because we want to. We too are bondservants or love slaves of Jesus. And then Jude writes, To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Not just added but multiplied. God multiplies His blessings upon those He calls and He sanctifies and He preserves. You know, God calls us to Himself. He's calling you now. Are you listening? Have you heard His call? And then once He calls, He earmarks us or sets us apart for His purposes. It was Mark Twain who said, the two greatest days in a person's life is the day we're born and the day we discover why we're born. Hey, we're born to know God. And once we're called, once we're set apart or assigned to God's purposes, God preserves us. Once we're on the right track, He keeps us on track. God calls us and He sets us apart and He protects us. And then verse 3, Jude writes, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. You see, initially, Jude's desire was to write about our common salvation. The blessings that are ours in Christ. But another urgent issue was pressing on his heart. For he tells them, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. See, a treatise on the workings and treasures of salvation would have been a luxury at the time. A more pressing matter was a defense for the faith. And here's why. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude had encountered certain men, 
ungodly men, obviously false teachers who were denying the truth about God and about God's grace. He says they crept in unnoticed. That means they were creeps. These creeps had crept into the church. 2 Peter 2 verse 1 warned us, there will be false teachers among you. Already Jude saw that they were there. And he writes to encourage his readers to fight for the truth. In 2016, LifeWay Research conducted a survey that shined a light onto the theology of today's Americans. For example, though 70% of us believe that there is only one true God, 64%, that's two-thirds, believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, Christianity and Judaism and Islam. Just 54%, that's barely half of Americans, now believe that faith in Jesus alone as their Savior is the only way to receive God's free gift of eternal life. That means 46% of Americans believe Jesus is not the only way to God. 52% of Americans believe good deeds help earn you a spot in heaven. 52%. 65% believe that though we all sin a little, most people are still naturally good. Well, they ought to live with a toddler for a little while. Only 40% of Americans believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. And 56% believe the Holy Spirit is a cosmic force, not a person. Here's how bad it really is. Among Americans, the most often quoted Bible verse is, God helps those who help themselves. The only problem is that's not a Bible verse at all. It's a quote from Thomas Jefferson. And yet 82% of all Americans say it comes from the Bible. I'm afraid we're not doing a very good job of contending for the faith. And realize this is everybody's job. Not just the pastor's job. It's your job around the water cooler at work. And in conversations with your friends. And it's every Christian's job to teach biblical truth to our kids. We're all called to contend earnestly for the faith. For notice... It's the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. See, God isn't adding new truth. The Bible is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The Old Testament scriptures that were confirmed by Jesus and the New Testament letters issued from the pen of His apostles is the truth given by God once and for all. We're not waiting on God to release Christianity 2.0. He's not updating the app. The Bible you possess is God's authoritative word for all time and for all people. With all our might, we need to contend for His book. Jude challenges us, contend earnestly. The Greek word contend is to struggle or to wrestle for the truth. I'll never forget the tiny bit of wrestling I did when I was in high school phys ed. Man, that mat time was really three minutes long, but it was the longest three minutes of my life. Wrestling is intense and grueling and draining. Man, when that whistle blew, I was totally spent. 
And yet this is the exhaustive kind of effort we should give to the understanding and the proclamation of God's Word. A few years ago, I was invited to speak at a pastor's conference in New Zealand. Kathy and I, we rented a car and we discovered a uniqueness about New Zealand. It's a country with hundreds of single-lane bridges. Apparently, the New Zealand DOT is too cheap to spend the extra money and build two-lane bridges. They're all single-lane bridges. And for an American who's used to multi-lane bridges, the first few times you pull out onto one of those long one-lane bridges, it's a little disconcerting. It's a little uneasy. On a two-lane bridge, there's room for two vehicles traveling in opposite directions, but not on a one-lane bridge. Both cars can't have the right-of-way. See, pluralism doesn't work on a one-lane bridge. Either there'll be a crash or there'll be a standoff. But on a one-lane bridge, there's not room for both cars to operate simultaneously. And friends, life is like a one-lane bridge. At times, two opinions can't pass as if both are equally true. The two ideas will either crash or they'll force a standoff. But both can't be right simultaneously. One lane means somebody is right and somebody is wrong. And every Christian needs the courage to pull out onto a one lane bridge. We need to take a stand for what's biblical and true with our family, with our co-workers, with our neighbors. God has revealed His will through His Word. And on many issues, there's no room for multiple conclusions. We can't be afraid to pull out into a single lane just because we may crash with someone coming the opposite direction or force a standoff. Every way is not the right way. And here, rather than stay in his lane, Jude is willing to pull out onto a one-lane bridge. Even if it means losing a friend or alienating a family member or inciting opposition. Jude trusts God, and he realizes his job is to be faithful to God's Word regardless of the circumstances. And not only did Jude contend for God's truth, but he also contended for God's grace. In verse 4, the word lewdness implies an excuse to do evil. The opposite of grace, in fact. God sets us free from the Old Testament law not to act lawlessly, but lovingly. True liberty produces love for God and love for others, not a license to serve myself. A few years ago, the Atlanta newspaper ran a story that caught my attention. It was entitled, Praying for a Successful Heist. When I read it, I couldn't believe it. According to a federal indictment in Des Moines, Iowa, Kenneth Ray Bruner led his seven accomplices in prayer, asking for God's protection just before they set out to knock off Herman's fine jewelry. I'm not making this up. Bruner acknowledged, according to the indictment, that they were going to do bad things, but that they were not bad people. It was pointed out that no one was hurt in the robbery, and everyone was behind bars the next day. But this is how people think today. 
They see no contradiction between being born again and robbing banks or sleeping with their boyfriend or pilfering from the company or fudging on their income tax or cheating on a spouse or watching porn. God's grace frees us from condemnation so that we can know God and walk in His Spirit. But when His Holy Spirit fills my hollow spirit, changes begin to occur. If you say you're a Christian yet aren't becoming more like Jesus, friends, there's a problem. Something's wrong. If you're truly born again, you'll be different than you once were. You'll love instead of hate. You'll give instead of take. You'll care instead of stare right past the need. You'll obey God instead of going your own way. Jude continues, he says, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this. And notice this letter was a reminder of what had already been written to these believers. If you compare the next few verses in Jude with 2 Peter chapter 2, you'll find some surprising similarities. It was as if Jude re-recorded Peter's song, as if he covered an old hit. The truths that Peter had spoken were still so relevant that Jude wanted to repeat them. Jude warns that false teachers will come. In fact, he says they're now here. They've crept into the church. And the folks they're able to dupe will share in their judgment. And he illustrates this principle of a shared judgment with three examples. The Hebrews who left Egypt, the angels at the flood of Noah, and the citizens of Sodom. And we're going to read about all three. The first example are the Hebrews that God delivered from Egypt. Verse 5. That the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. You know, throughout their long history, the Hebrews habitually listened to the wrong people. That was their problem. First, it was Edward G. Robinson. You remember the little twerp in the movie? Who, there he goes. After this day, you shall see his chariots no more. No! It's amazing Moses didn't just slap the little buzzard down. Edward G. Robinson. You know, he was one of the doubters, one of those who wanted to return to Egypt. They listened to him. Later, they followed a rebel named Korah. Still later, they listened to the ten doubting spies rather than to Joshua and Caleb. See, they perished because they took heed to bad counsel. What kind of counsel are you listening to? Another example of those who shared the judgment of the people who deceived them, verse 6, were the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Wow. According to Peter, this story harkens back to the flood of Noah. Jude's phrase, who did not keep their proper domain, has some really bizarre connotations. Some Bible teachers think this refers to the fallen angels who appeared as males and crossed a God-imposed barrier to engage in sex with women. 
Genesis 6 is offered as proof. Now it came to pass, the sons of God, which was an idiom for angels, saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. That's what motivated him to judge the world. Fallen angels or demons appeared in male form and romanced the daughters of men. But it gets even more bizarre. I need a little twilight music, twilight zone music here, if you, if you don't mind. Yeah, there we go, there we go. That sort of sets up Genesis 6, for it continues. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. See, these unlawful unions between demons and daughters created a race of what the Bible calls giants, a freakish breed of hybrids, apparently. And you know, ancient mythology is full of such creatures. You read about gremlins and titans and nymphs and hobbits. They were the offspring of divine beings and human beings. Perhaps these legends were echoes of the actual giants in Genesis. And this explains God's extraordinary punishment. Why did He destroy mankind with a flood and start over with eight people? Apparently, the human gene pool had been perverted. Only Noah's family remained pure. And realize this idea of sexual experiences with demons is not as bizarre as it may seem. Fallen angels romancing women is a favorite Hollywood storyline these days. In fact, it appears in the occult as well as in the UFO literature. As a matter of fact, if you believe as I do that UFOs are demonic appearances, then sexual abductions could be another instance of fallen angels leaving their proper domain. Satan's agents are always trying to cross boundaries imposed by God. Jude warns us not to do the same. You see, you cross a God-ordained boundary when you desire a person who's not your spouse. Or when you take a drink that you know will get you drunk. Or when you embrace a belief that's unbiblical. Or when you ignore an authority that God has placed over you. Jude is warning us, cross a boundary ordained by God and you'll be judged like the angels. And then in verse 7, he says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Sodom was a wicked city. Ezekiel 16 mentions her pride, her idleness, her greed, her apathy. Yet here, Jude calls out her sexual perversion. Sodom went after strange flesh. In other words, she refused to embrace God's plan for sexuality. Again, as the fallen angels, she thought that she could set her own boundaries. And this is what makes homosexuality sinful. It's a deviation of the way God designed for men and women to function sexually. 
from creation and throughout the Bible, same-sex relationships are condemned by God. On the one hand, homosexuals need to be shown God's love and invited to turn from their sin and to follow Jesus. On the other hand, homosexual behavior is evidence of people who have hardened their heart to God's truth. Jude's point, though, is that the citizens of Sodom, they started out blessed. They had tremendous advantages, yet they failed to honor God. And in the end, they were judged. Verse 8, likewise, also these dreamers. And Jude refocuses now on the false teachers that had crept into the church. He describes them. He says, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries. They have no decorum or respect for spiritual authority. They're arrogant and haughty and pretentious. They have no fear of God. And he gives an example. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. The heretics of Jude's day had no sense of spiritual proportion. Their disrespect and their ego and their haughtiness extended even into the spiritual realm. It reminds me of today's bombastic preachers. You hear them sometimes on TV where they shout at the devil and they try to boss about the demons. Hey, I'm no admirer of the devil, but neither am I arrogant enough to call him out and deliberately pick a fight. The devil, though sinful and sinister, is still an angelic being and he's very powerful. In Christ, He's no match for me, but on my own, I know I'm no match for Him. And this is why Michael, though an archangel, that's an angel with rank and muscle, he didn't shout vicious threats. Rather, he resisted Satan in a humble manner. Michael made sure that he put Jesus between him and the devil. I suggest you do the same. He had respect for spiritual realities and the power of his enemy. And thus he said, the Lord rebuke you. Never live in fear of the devil. We shouldn't. 1 John 4 verse 4 tells us that the Jesus in us is greater than the devil. James 4 verse 7 says boldly, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But that doesn't give us the right to act arrogantly either. As if we can take on the devil ourselves. Always keep the Lord between you and the devil. As Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. That's the appropriate reaction. And then verse 11, he says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam, for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And Jude gives three more examples that warn us not to fall away from God's truth. Realize all three of these people started in a good place, yet they wandered away. Cain, remember, got caught up in anger. He got mad that his brother's sacrifice was accepted and his was not. The heir of Balaam was greed. He followed God, but he could be bought. He had a price. Balaam was a sellout. And Korah was a jealous man. He couldn't stand to see Moses promoted over him. And Jude's point to us is to guard against anger 
and greed and jealousy because all three can bring you down. He says in verse 12, again describing these false teachers, these are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Remember the love feast was the church's weekly potluck. It was a meal where the poor were fed and the believers were refreshed. It all culminated when communion. And yet anger and greed and jealousy can sabotage the love feast. Where it becomes not about love at all. These false teachers cared only about themselves. They clamored for attention rather than serve others. They scarfed up food rather than shared. These men had no restraint. They had no fear of God. And they brought spots or blemishes to the love feast. Jude continues describing the spiritual charlatans that had invaded the church. He says they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds. You know, you see a cloud and you hope for rain. Clouds speak of promise. And yet these men were clouds without water. They promised blessing, but the only people they blessed were themselves. He says, they're late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. In other words, they had multiple chances to bear fruit, yet they ended up barren. Despite second and third chances, they were were men who never failed to disappoint. And he says, they were raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. They produced foam. They produced waves of ministry motion, white caps of activity, but nothing of eternal value. Their ministry was all foam and no fruit. And Jude saves the best and most vivid description for last. He says, they were like wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. These false teachers were like shooting stars darting across the night sky. They flash against the heavens for a moment, a second, but then sell off into oblivion. They're here today and gone tomorrow. They have no staying power. You know, once a woman, she went on a new diet. It was the all-garlic diet. All garlic. Every morning she ate a garlic sandwich. At noon it was garlic for lunch. Garlicky food for dinner as well. In the end, the woman didn't lose any weight, but people said she looked a lot smaller from a distance. And see, that was Jude's take on these false teachers. They looked good. They had style. But they lacked character. They were all show and no substance. They might have looked good at a distance, but not up close. And then he says in verse 14, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. And this blows my mind. Enoch was the seventh from Adam. Now, now that dates a guy. You think I'm old. Being the seventh from Adam... I mean, you lived a long, long time ago if your generation was in shouting distance of Adam. But what did this ancient Enoch preach? This is amazing. 
Even the seventh from Adam preached the second coming of Jesus Christ. He warned the world that one day King Jesus will appear and hurl God's wrath on the ungodly. Jude continues his attack on the bogus church leaders. He says, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Rather than tell you what God says, they tell you what you want to hear. They flatter their listeners with falsehood rather than challenge them with truth. Their goal is to gain support for themselves and their ministry instead of bringing salvation to their hearers. One year I received a card, and it said a lot of things, but one line from the card, it read, Thank you for teaching God's Word and not a lot of other stuff. I've never forgotten that. I hope it's still true. God's Word is our great need. And then verse 17, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that, they, that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. Again, Jude reminds his readers what Jesus and the apostles had predicted, that insincere people will creep in. They will infiltrate the church to pad their own pockets. Men who are more sensual than spiritual, more lustful than loving. False teachers who are more out for themselves than out for God will come on the scene. And under this kind of self-centered and self-absorbed leadership, the church fractures and splinters and divides. And how we see that happen today. It's only when leaders submit to God and to each other that the believers with them follow suit and stay united. And then verse 20 tells us, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Here's how to be a victorious Christian. Learn to refuel in flight. Like a military aircraft on a long, long mission, you can refuel spiritually while you're on the go, while you're in the air. You can keep yourself in the love of God. This is amazing. Think of the Father's love as a summer shower. At any moment, He can pour out His blessing. Just don't put up an umbrella. Keep yourself in that place where you can be blessed. Keep yourself in the love of God. Here's another way of saying, saying it. You should jot this down. Stay under the spout where the blessings come out. That's the goal of become. That's how you become a victorious Christian. And here's how Jude tells us to do it. Three steps. First, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Second, praying in the Holy Spirit. And third, looking for the mercy of our Lord unto eternal life. Here's how to refuel in flight. Here's how to keep your batteries charged. Keep running strong. First, add some muscle to your faith. Build up your most holy faith. And how do you do that? You build it up by studying and applying God's Word. 
Romans 10 verse 17 tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. (coughs) Then second, pray in the Holy Spirit. Lean into the Holy Spirit when you pray. He lives in you, friends. And He wants to make your prayers more effective. Thus, rely on His activity when you pray. And then third, live today in light of eternity. Look for the mercy of our Lord unto eternal life, which is our escape. It's the rapture of the church. The Bible says that before God's judgment falls, the church will rise, will be caught up into heaven. And so here's how to refuel in flight. Build up your faith through the Word of God. Pray in the Holy Spirit and always be looking for the return of Jesus, for His coming mercies. And then verse 22, And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And here Jude speaks of two types of evangelism. You know, there are folks who hear about the love of Jesus and they want to follow Him. They're drawn by His love. It's Romans 2 verse 4. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. Some people are led to Christ by the sweet-smelling fragrance of His love. But for others, it takes the sulfur smell of fire and brimstone rising from the pit of hell. G. Campbell Morgan once said, I admit that I have seen a far larger number surrender to Christ when I've been preaching on the terrible results of neglecting salvation than when dwelling on any other theme. Reminds me of the New York cab driver and the pastor. They both died and they went to heaven at the same time. In fact, they were sitting out in the lobby when an angel walked in and he took the New York cabbie on this grand tour of heaven while the pastor had to sit there and wait. Boy, it ticked off the pastor. Why did he have to wait while a cab driver gets the royal treatment? Well, finally, the angel came to usher in the pastor. But he couldn't help it. He had to ask. He said, I've loved people all these years, and I've been faithful to teach God's Word. Why was that cab driver giving special treatment over me? The angel replied. He said, yes, yes, you comforted folks, but that New York cab driver scared the hell out of them. (laughs) And that's the idea here. There's people so lodged in sin, it takes some good old-fashioned fear to shake them up. And then Jude closes his letter in verse 24 with a song of praise, with a beautiful doxology. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. What a wonderful refrain. Worth our examination. Notice the words. Now to Him who is able. You know, a fascinating study is to note all that the Bible says God is able to do. In Daniel 3 verse 17 Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tell the king of Babylon that God is able to deliver us from that fiery furnace. In Matthew 3 verse 9, John the Baptist informs the Jews that God is able to make children of Abraham out of those Galilean stones. Romans 4 verse 21 tells us that God is able to perform 
all that He has promised. Aren't you glad? Ephesians 3 verse 20 states that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8 says that if we give to God, He is able to make His blessing abound to us. Hebrews 2 verse 18 assures us that God is able to help us when we're tempted. And then Hebrews 7 verse 25 promises that God is able to save to the uttermost those who come to His Son Jesus. The story of the Bible is that God is able. And Jude adds to the list of marvelous things that God is able to do. He says in verse 24 that God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. You know, I see fragile folks come to Christ. I sit right down here. I have people come forward. They repent in a time of desperation. They're hanging on by a thread. And yes, they leave happier. They're, they're more hopeful. They're relieved from the guilt that they felt. There's even a joy in their heart. Yet you know that they're going home to the same problems they left behind, to the same burdens that got them searching. Those burdens still exist. Tomorrow they'll face the very same temptations that brought them here today. Is there any hope that these new believers, just babes in Christ, will still be walking with Jesus next week? Or will they get sucked right back up into a web of sin? Why do we have any confidence at all that you or me or them will still be living for Jesus next week or the week after or the years and decades to come. Our confidence lies in this truth. God is able to keep us from stumbling. The power is not in us. God is able. If we hold on to Jesus, we'll make it through the tough spots. We'll make it down the rocky roads. We'll survive the slip-ups and the stumbles. And we'll arrive at God's throne. As Jude says, God is able to present us faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. I'm not able. You're not able. But God is able. And my faith is in His abilities, not in my own. I want us to close by reading this doxology together. It was probably read out loud in unison in many of the early churches. Would you like to read these last two verses with me? Let's read them out loud. It gains power. It gains momentum when we read it out loud. But now whenever we do this, we've got to clear our throat first. So <clears throat> let's get a throat clearing and let's all get ready. And we've got it up on the screen, so we'll all be reading out of the same translation. How about that? So we're going to read verses 24 and 25 together, and it's going to catch some power. We're going to get some power behind these words. They're going to ring in our ears as we leave. Three, two, one. Now to Him who is... Whoa, 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 whoa. We've got to do better than that. We've got to start off better than that. You ready? You want to do it? You really want to do it? Three, two, one. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power 
both now and forever. Amen.